You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Friends, this is our second episode about the COVID-19 vaccine and what we've learned since our last discussion. Before I jump in, I want you to note that we recorded this on January 21st, 2021, and we're releasing it on January 26th, 2021. Why am I telling you this? Because as we know, what we learn about COVID-19 and the COVID-19 vaccines is rapidly changing. Also, when we talk about the vaccines, we're only discussing the mRNA vaccines, that's Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna. Now that I've cleared all of that up, here's what we're getting into. Dr. Lacey Robinson joined us to tackle the subject. Dr. Robinson is an attending physician in allergy and immunology at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she's an instructor at the Harvard Medical School. In addition to clinical care, she is a clinical research with an interest in anaphylaxis, asthma, and early life risk factors for developing allergy. Dr. Robinson and her colleagues are actively performing research on allergic reactions to COVID-19 vaccines. So, we really couldn't have a better person to help us dive into the following topics. How common are vaccine allergies? How common is the COVID-19 vaccine allergy? What they suspect are the reasons people are having an allergic reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine? What are the symptoms that can be mistaken for an allergic reaction when receiving the COVID-19 vaccine? What allergy tests are being performed for those who are concerned they may have an allergic reaction to the COVID-19 vaccine? And if you have had a reaction to the vaccine or you have a PEG allergy, what are the steps involved in evaluating if you can get the vaccine? That sounds like a lot, I know, but it will be very clear once you listen. So let's get to it. We're so excited to be joined today by Dr. Lacey Robinson from Mass General Hospital. She's an allergist immunologist, and she is actively doing studies on allergies related to the COVID-19 vaccines. And we're particularly talking about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are out at this time. The first question we have, how common are vaccine allergies? That's an excellent question. So when we think about vaccine allergy, we want to think about a couple of different types of allergies. So there are immediate allergic reactions or delayed allergic reactions. And in the immediate category, we're most concerned about severe allergic reactions or anaphylaxis. And these reactions or anaphylactic reactions are extremely rare to vaccines. When we think about anaphylaxis to vaccines, I'm going to talk first about vaccines that are not these new mRNA COVID vaccines, but the previous vaccines. And for those vaccines, we find that anaphylaxis occurs at about a rate of 1.31 cases of anaphylaxis per 1 million doses given. To put that in a little bit of context, uh, a lightning strike occurs in about 1 in 500,000 people. So this is exceedingly rare. In a relatively recent review of anaphylaxis cases related to vaccines, there were no deaths from these anaphylaxis cases, and they only found 33 cases in their whole review of millions of doses. 
do you have any numbers for the COVID-19 vaccines? The COVID-19 vaccines, as you know, just came out. Um, And when we first started vaccinating the public, there were lots of reports in the media of potential cases of anaphylaxis. And as we've been gathering data, there's been little published, but we do have a little bit of a sense of maybe some rates of anaphylaxis with these vaccines. So the CDC reviewed cases for the Pfizer vaccine that were administered through December of 2020, and they found only 21 cases of confirmed anaphylaxis in over 1.89 million doses of vaccine administered, which would be a rate of about 11.1 cases of anaphylaxis per 1 million doses. So more common than we had seen in previous vaccines, but still exceedingly rare. Can you explain to us how they defined anaphylaxis in this case? So that's a great question, and I think that's one of the most important things we have to think about when we're talking about vaccine allergy. There are a lot of mimics of anaphylaxis, especially when someone just receives a a needle jab to a medication. So in this study, they used common criteria called the Brighton criteria to define anaphylaxis. So they used reports to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is maintained by the CDC and the FDA. Out of the 1.8 million doses that were administered, they had 4,393 potential allergic reactions. They narrowed that down to 175 potential cases of anaphylaxis. And then when they reviewed them looking at the standardized criteria, so looking for time to onset, symptoms, and severity of symptoms, they found only 21 cases of anaphylaxis. The rest of the cases, 86 were potentially allergic but not anaphylaxis, and 61 were non-allergic. And so potential mimics of anaphylaxis, so other things that could happening here, vasovagal reactions, which is kind of like a needle reaction to a vaccine. It can happen with blood draws or vaccinations. It's much more a response to the needle and not an allergy, but can be quite frightening and kind of sweating, dizziness, fatigue, and even syncope. Can you explain syncope for the lay person? Fainting or passing out or losing consciousness, I think would all be the common words there. Thanks, Lacey. That was super helpful. And As far as allergic people are concerned, I know the media also was specifically saying that the reactions that are happening might be happening more in individuals with an underlying allergic disorder and specifically people that carry around EpiPens, I think was commonly said in a lot of the media. Yeah, so this same report from the CDC has a little bit of information there too. So of the 21 cases of anaphylaxis, only seven of them had had a previous history of anaphylaxis, so just 33% of patients. About 81% of them had some history of allergic disease, but certainly, as we know as allergists, that um, allergic reactions are antigen-specific. So if you have a peanut allergy that and you have peanut anaphylaxis, you're going to have anaphylaxis to a peanut, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have anaphylaxis to an antibiotic and your antibiotic allergy doesn't necessarily mean you have a vaccine allergy. So I think that's a really important point to keep in mind. I think the next thing that I might want to talk about is I know that there are some studies that are specifically looking at patients with a history of allergy. Do you know anything about the studies and exactly why and what is being done in those studies? One of the studies that's coming down the pipeline, the NIH is planning a study looking at people who are potentially at increased risk of allergic reactions due to history of anaphylaxis or mast cell activation syndrome and comparing those to their non-allergic counterparts. We don't have a lot of details on this study yet, but it is planned to start 
hopefully in February. At Mass General Brigham, we've been involved in several studies trying to gather data on allergic reactions to help either phenotype, so define what these allergic reactions look like and when they're happening, to identify potential risk factors for having allergic reactions, and to identify the role of testing on either before a vaccination or after a vaccination to see what the utility of that is. And we hope to have preliminary data on some of these in the next month or so. So Allergic Living just released an article called Likely More Than One Cause for COVID-19 Vaccine Reactions. And I know that you just mentioned something about mast cells. And in this article, I'm just going to quote what they put, and then I'll ask you my question. And they say, causes may involve immune system mast cells being activated in a non-allergic fashion. What does that mean exactly? And how does someone with a food allergy interpret that? So when we think about anaphylaxis type reactions that occur immediately after exposure to food or a medication, we can think of two different types of mechanisms. The most classic one is IgE mediated. So that's like a food allergy reaction. If you're food allergic, you make IgE to the food that you're allergic to. When you eat the food, that protein binds to the E in your body it activates the mast cells or the allergy cells and then can cause anaphylaxis. And the other type of anaphylactic reaction, a non-IgE mediated reaction, this type has a couple of different names. Sometimes we call it anaphylactoid or mast cell activation. And that's where your mast cells are directly activated, but without that protein, that IgE antibody being present. This most commonly occurs with iodinated contrast. So if you have a CT scan and you receive IV contrast, when you admit, get this medication, it will directly activate your mast cells, but there's no IgE antibody there. But you can have symptoms and signs similar to anaphylaxis, like hives, itching, trouble breathing, and wheezing. We treat both of these reactions the same, but the underlying cause is different. And how we can detect whether or not you have this allergy is different and how we treat them is different. So certainly if you have an IgE mediated cause, we can potentially find on skin testing or on blood testing, the presence of that IgE protein. But if it's more of a mast cell activation or non-IgE mediated allergy, we're really unable to detect an IgE antibody. And sometimes even with IV contrast is an example, we're able to give pre-medications like high doses of antihistamines and steroids to allow you to receive future doses of that medication. Another type of non-IgE mediated cause of anaphylaxis would be complement mediated anaphylaxis. Complements are these tiny proteins that are in your blood that can be activated by various inflammatory triggers. And if those are activated, they can release these special chemical mediators that are called anaphylatoxins because they can actually cause anaphylaxis. And that would be most similar to when sometimes people receive an IV medication called vancomycin and they can get redness and flushing and itching. And it's actually just related to the triggering of these anaphylatoxins, but not related to an IgE-mediated allergy. So when they had the 4,000 cases that were documented, are those some of the things that happened in that population? I don't have all of the details of those, but I would guess that these adverse reactions were not likely allergic. So I think this is a great time to talk about the other things that can happen that are normal, expected, and don't increase your chance of anaphylaxis after you receive a vaccine. So one of the really common adverse reactions to a vaccine is something that we call a large local reaction. And that's where you get redness, swelling, itching, or pain that's right at the site where you received your vaccine. It can occur one to two days after the vaccine or even a week after the vaccine. It can last for a few days. It can be quite red and swollen, but it's just your immune system's response to the vaccine 
and it is not an allergic reaction and it does not prevent you from receiving the next dose of the vaccine. The second thing that people can experience are these kind of common and expected adverse events. So things like feeling really tired, muscle aches and pains, headaches, and even fevers. These are also just your immune system responding to the vaccine, but are not indicative of allergy and do not raise your risk of anaphylaxis to the vaccine on future doses. That's really good to hear that these things can happen and that you should be aware of it so that you're not thinking, oh, it's an allergic reaction because I read that so many people have allergic reactions when we know it's actually not that many people and it just can bring down the fear factor of the COVID-19 vaccine for those with food allergies. Yeah, I agree. I think the more we know what to expect before we receive our vaccine, the more reassured we'll all feel. And I think you went into this a little bit, but I think it's worth re-emphasizing is just the timing of reaction and the timing of symptoms and how that can tell you if it's a true allergy or if it might be something else. Yes, I think that's really important. So when we're thinking about anaphylaxis, this is almost always an immediate reaction. So really occurring within four hours, but most commonly occurring within 15 minutes after the vaccine. So in that CDC report, that was just published. There are 21 cases of anaphylaxis. 71% occurred within 15 minutes and the median time was just 13 minutes after the dose of the vaccine. Things that start the next day are much less likely to be allergic in nature. Things that persist for several days are much less likely to be allergic in nature and certainly not this anaphylaxis or IgE-mediated cause. So now that we've talked about all of the different types of reactions people can have and what an allergy would look like. Can we get into some of the reasons that we think people might be having reactions to these mRNA vaccines and what specific components might be causing those reactions and what the theories might be around that? So when we think about vaccine allergy, we think about a vaccine. It contains the antigen, which causes an immune response is what you're looking for. And then it contains other components, which are other ingredients in the vaccine. And when we think about vaccine allergy, we are almost always thinking about what those other ingredients or excipients are in the vaccine, because they're almost always the cause of allergy. Really the virus or the protein or the bacteria that's causing the immune response is not the cause of allergy. In the past, a lot of vaccines had contained some food products, so eggs, sometimes milk, gelatin, and latex, some antibiotics, and those were common triggers of allergic reactions. These two mRNA vaccines by both Pfizer and Moderna do not contain any of those things. So they contain no food products, they contain no antibiotics, they contain no latex, they contain no gelatin. And so when we look at the ingredient list of these vaccines, it's really containing the mRNA, which causes the immune response. There's a lipid, which is just kind of the envelope that that message is delivered into your cells. And in that lipid envelope, there is a protein conjugated to it called polyethylene glycol. And that is one of the only things in this vaccine that's potential allergen. The rest of the ingredients are really kind of water, salt, electrolytes, and sugar, but nothing that should cause an allergy. I think the next natural question is, what is polyethylene glycol? This is probably not something that you commonly think about. It is an excipient, so ingredient in a lot of medications that we use. This specific polyethylene glycol in the vaccine is called polyethylene glycol 2000. It is new in a vaccine. We encounter polyethylene glycol all the time in a variety of things. The most common being laxative therapy. So Miralax is very common. For people who've ever undergone a colonoscopy, you're asked to drink this liquid before and it's called Go Lightly and contains polyethylene glycol. Also found in ultrasound gel, 
and several injectable medications such as Depomedrol, which is a steroid, and some other biologic medications. This molecule has been linked to allergic reactions previously, but in extremely low numbers, it's an extremely rare cause of allergens. So in a study published in 2019, they reported an average of four cases per year of polyethylene glycol anaphylaxis being reported to the FDA in the United States. So it's a very, very uncommon allergen. Polyethylene glycol can be cross-reactive with another type of lipid or fat called polysorbate, an extra ingredient in injectable medications and in vaccines. Also, BG-mediated allergy to these vaccines, that's what we're thinking about. But we don't know that this is the cause, and there's actually never been a proven case of anaphylaxis to this novel polyethylene glycol. The one thing I just want to say is that it is also commonly written as PEG. So you might be seeing PEG in some of the articles that you're reading. And I just want to reiterate again, as someone with multiple food allergies, that I shouldn't be afraid. I'm going to have a reaction to the vaccine because of the PEG, because I have multiple food allergies. There's no reason for that fear. It's just kind of silliness. So just remember that because you have food allergies, it doesn't mean you automatically have a PEG allergy and that the media likes to blow things out of proportion. Okay, that's my PSA for today. You mentioned that there are a couple of other mechanisms that they're looking at as potential causes of the reactions. Can you jump into those? So I think the other potential causes would be mast cell activation or complement mediated. And so those are things that we're going to have to evaluate more as we gather more data about these potential reactions. I have a question and I feel like I'm not going to be able to articulate it properly because I'm not really perfect with the science, but I'm just curious because of the mRNA, since it's a new type of vaccine and it's working with and into the immune system, whether there is a chance of just having your immune system react like it would do for an allergic reaction because the mRNA mechanism is so new into the system. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? You're making sense. And I think I see where your question is going. So our cells make mRNA all the time. That's what we do when we make proteins in our body to survive. And when we are infected with viruses, they instruct ourselves to make viral proteins. And we don't anaphylax when we just have viruses. So I think it is very, very unlikely that we are having anaphylaxis to the mRNA. And I think that is not a trigger here. And though these vaccines are newly approved under emergency use, authorization. There has been robust phase three trials that didn't show a particularly increased allergic risk, and they had been tested in other diseases previously. So I think that's a very not likely cause. But good question. Thank you. I feel like I've been reading lots of trying to figure out how the for podcast listeners, they know that I kind of like to know all the little nuancey things. And I'm just really trying to wrap my head around what the mRNA vaccine is. And I was wondering that and I was like, am I just going crazy? Am I just trying to be too sciencey for my own good. So thank you. I feel like that's really a clear answer of what the mRNA is doing. I'm glad that was helpful. I think that was great overview of what do we know about the reactions? What does an allergic reaction look like? What could the potential causes be? And now I think the new aspect to all of this is actually testing people. Lacey, when would you decide to test a patient for a vaccine allergy? 
the vast majority of people can absolutely receive these vaccines without any previous testing. There is only a very, very small group of individuals who should see an allergist and consider allergy testing before receiving these vaccines. And so that's anyone who has really a known or suspected allergy to an ingredient of this vaccine, which is potentially polyethylene glycol, which is potentially cross-reactive with polysorbate. So if you've had an immediate allergic reaction or anaphylaxis to a medication or vaccine containing polyethylene glycol or polysorbate, you should see an allergist before you're vaccinated so that we can gather a history and decide what your allergic reaction was or if it was an allergic reaction and if you need to have testing prior to receiving the vaccine. But if you have a food allergy or environmental allergies, a venom allergy or family history of allergies, you can absolutely receive these vaccines without testing. If you have a history of anaphylaxis to anything, we do recommend in an accordance with CDC guidelines that you're monitored for 30 minutes after receiving the vaccine. Wonderful. And I think that this would be also a good time just to talk about if you do have a reaction, what the treatment would look like and why we say getting monitored for 30 minutes should be sufficient in helping ensure your safety. So these very rare reactions, like I already talked about, are most likely to occur immediately after receiving the vaccine. So the majority occur within 15 minutes, and then the vast majority occur within 30 minutes. And all of the vaccine sites, as per CDC guidance, are equipped with epinephrine and are capable of managing anaphylaxis. The treatment of anaphylaxis or an immediate severe allergic reaction to a vaccine is epinephrine, and it works very well. Oftentimes, people might have to be evaluated in the emergency room afterwards, but mostly if you're having signs or symptoms that you think are allergic, you should be evaluated by the staff at the vaccine clinic. And if it's determined to be a severe allergic reaction, you would receive epinephrine. And then you would need to be seen by an allergist prior to even considering your next dose of the vaccine. Great. So now let's say I'm one of those people who either has had a history of a polyethylene glycol reaction, or I had an immediate reaction to the vaccine, the first dose of the vaccine. What are my next steps and what is my allergist going to do for me? So excellent question. I'm going to talk about this in two separate groups. So first being the person who has not yet received this vaccine, but who might have an allergy to polyethylene glycol or polysorbate. So you're going to see your allergist and your allergist is going to determine what happened, what medication you received and what other vaccines or injectable medications you've received since the time of the reaction. Based on that, your allergist may be able to risk stratify you. If you didn't have what we think was anaphylaxis, potentially you can go on to receive the vaccine. But if we are concerned about you having an immediate allergic reaction or anaphylaxis to PEG or polysorbate containing medication, you can undergo skin testing for polyethylene glycol and polysorbate. Depending on the history of your reaction and the results of your skin testing, you may not be eligible for these vaccines. So if you did have anaphylaxis to polyethylene glycol, probably not eligible for these vaccines. But like we previously talked about, this is being reported at about four cases per year in the United States. So it's a very small group of people. But potentially, depending on what we learn and your skin testing and your history, you may be eligible for future vaccines, which do not contain PEG and contain polysorbates instead. But that will kind of have to be a specific discussion with your allergist, but in general, very, very rare. And then the second group of people is 
you receive your first dose of the mRNA vaccine and you have what seems like an immediate, potentially allergic reaction. So the next step there is also to see an allergist to help clinically phenotype your reaction. And by that, I mean to decide what your symptoms and your treatment and your course, if that sounds like it is a potential allergic reaction. And we can add in another step to help us make our diagnosis, which is skin testing to polyethylene glycol, which is what's contained in the vaccine. And then based off of all of that information, you and your allergist can have a decision and discuss together, decide if you are eligible to receive the next dose of vaccine, if it wasn't an allergic reaction, and how you would receive the next dose of the vaccine safely. Yeah, that sounds all really reasonable. And it just sounds like it would be a skin prick that you would get if you were looking at being tested. There's no blood testing for these ones. There's no commercially available blood testing at this time. We are looking at doing skin testing to polyethylene glycol or polysorbate with both skin prick testing and intradermal testing, which is just tiny needles underneath the skin. I think there are reports that you have to use the vaccine itself to do the skin prick testing. And the media is talking about there's a shortage of vaccines. So why would we use the vaccines to test people? And so can you just comment on that briefly? So we are not using the vaccine to skin test people for several reasons. One, under the emergency use authorization, it's really only meant to be used in the way it's approved. Two, the vaccine is in such short supply and certainly needed to cause immune response in people so that we can get this pandemic under control. And the third reason being with this new platform technology, we don't yet know about the skin testing results. So we don't know if this lipid envelope will work well for skin testing and how it will work. And can we just skin prick test or can we dilute and do interdermal testing? How is the cold chain, which is how we store the vaccine affected by all of these things. And so I think we need to learn a lot more about that once there's enough vaccine available to learn more about skin testing to the vaccine. But for now, we're skin testing to what we think are the potential allergic components. If a patient has a negative test, can we say with confidence that the patient can safely receive the vaccine and be reassured 100% of no reaction? Or what would you say? So drug allergy skin testing, we are using something that we call non-irritating concentrations, which means we don't use a concentration of the drug that should cause a positive reaction on your skin that's unrelated to allergy. So when we get a positive reaction, we truly believe that that is likely due to the presence of an IgE allergy to the drug. But we know much less about the negative predictive value of these tests. So if you have a negative test, it does not mean that you wouldn't have an allergic reaction. But that's where the conversation with your allergist comes in and is very important. So you and your allergist will discuss what happened, say, the first time or with your prior reaction and really make a decision together about the risks and the benefits and how you can receive that vaccine or if you can receive that vaccine and if an allergist needs to be there or if you have extended monitoring or what circumstances we feel comfortable with. So if you are like one of these super rare people who does react to PEG, I'm going to call it PEG now, and you get a skin prick test and you get the little bump and that's then positive, we know that the vaccine is not for you. If, however, you did get the skin prick test, your result is negative, so your skin didn't show any signs of a reaction, then it means that we can say you can go have it. For the most part, you talk to your allergist about what other symptoms happened and whether you can with confidence go. But you're saying that there isn't any record with false negatives. 
So a false negative is when it doesn't show up, but you do end up having allergic reaction, just to clarify what a false negative is. To understand what you're saying is, we don't have any information on false negatives and how often that occurs. Right, and so when you have a positive test, it's very helpful. And like you said, if you have a history of a reaction with a positive test, you're likely not going to receive the next dose of the vaccine. But it's less clear when you have a negative test, then we need to think more about what your previous reaction was and really spend some time deciding what the next best steps are, because we don't know for sure what that test means. And it might just be that the person is definitely going to be monitored for at least 30 minutes or maybe monitored for an hour, depending on when their first reaction occurred with their first dose. And just having that conversation about exactly the framing around how you're going to get that second dose. And I think if you had confirmed anaphylaxis to the first dose of the vaccine, a negative test probably won't allow you to receive the next dose of the vaccine, but might help us in in thinking about what vaccines you might be eligible for in the future and what might be a safe way to administer them down the line. Very good point. So essentially, if you have had a true anaphylactic reaction to the first dose, there is still an indication for you to get skin prick tested to see if it was one of those two components and then to figure out what vaccine you might be eligible for. And so just to be clear, the other vaccines that are in the pipelines, they all contain PEG or they some of them contain polysorbate and don't contain PEG. Can you just go over that really quickly? So the two that are currently approved, the Moderna and the Pfizer, both contain PEG, but then some of the ones coming down the pipeline contain polysorbate 20 or polysorbate 80. Got it. So that's why we're testing for both the polysorbate and the PEG is yeah. to analyze what other vaccines you would be eligible for. So it's like a two for one. You're essentially getting tested not only for the mRNA vaccine with the PEG in it, but also for the future potential vaccines that are coming out. And those molecules are thought to be highly cross-reactive. So potentially an allergy to one could cause an allergy to another. So it can be helpful from diagnostic purposes and for knowing what you should avoid if you had true anaphylaxis going forward. I do anticipate we're going to have a lot more information about PEG and polysorbate skin testing in the coming months that will be very helpful in guiding some of these conversations and decisions. And anyone who had kind of a funny reaction to the first dose and they're not sure if it was an allergic reaction or not, should they go and talk to their allergist about the second dose? They had symptoms of that large local reaction, like redness, swelling, and pain at the injection site. They don't need to talk to their allergist. That's not allergic and they can have the next vaccine. And if they had general adverse events like muscle aches, headaches, fatigue, chills, they don't need to talk to their allergist and they can receive the second dose of vaccine. If they had immediate allergic symptoms, so like high persistent shortness of breath, wheezing, low blood pressure, angioedema, which is swelling of the lips or the tongue. Then they need to see an allergist before they receive their second dose. And depending on their symptoms, they may not be eligible for the second dose of vaccine. But that should be exceedingly rare and unlikely to happen. And I do want to say that at any time, I think if anyone's questioning whether they should get the second dose and just wants to talk it through with their physician, I think that's always a good idea, whether or not it's an allergist or not. But I think talking it through and just not being scared to get the second dose because we know that the second dose is so important in this situation that if at any 
point you're nervous or scared to get your second dose and it's making you hesitant, you should definitely talk to a physician. I absolutely agree. And I think as allergists, we can really serve a great role to our patients to make sure that we can get them fully vaccinated and vaccinated safely going forward. And that is certainly our plan. Is there a message that you want to leave with everyone? Patients with food allergies, environmental allergies, family histories of allergies, history of anaphylaxis to things unrelated to this vaccine should feel reassured and feel safe that they should get this vaccine. And that if you do have a history of severe allergic reaction to a component of this vaccine, so a polyethylene glycol or cross-reactive component polysorbate, you should speak to your allergist about what the next steps are. And in the unlikely event you have an allergic reaction or potential allergic reaction to the first dose of vaccine, that's also a great time to speak out to your allergist and determine how to receive the vaccine safely or if you're able to in the future. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being on this podcast with us and for providing so much helpful information for everybody that listens. We really, really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing too. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And I hope that we'll be able to update you in the next couple of months with some good data about what's going on. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.